Now, I wonder, as we jump in today, have you ever had one of those moments where something that you've been really excited about or really fond of, you've tried to convince somebody else about it, and it's been gone down like a lead balloon? I remember years ago, I was trying to, we were talking about films with my wife, Claire, uh, and I was trying to convince her about one film. The film is, oh, brother, where art thou? Anyone seen that film? Okay, I love this film, certainly in my top 10. Great film, brilliant script. And I remember talking so excitedly with Claire, not long after we got married, actually, around this film. And, and, and therefore, we'd kind of set a moment that we were going to watch it, and I was going to watch it with her. It was in this brilliant, my wife watching the film that I love. Great. <laughs> and I can still remember... Halfway through the immortal words from her mouth. Do you mind if I get on with a few bits whilst you're watching this? <laughs> Cut deep, you know? Where something that you found really powerful and beautiful has kind of gone down like a lead balloon. Something I thought was so great, not so much for her. I'd uh, be interested to see what you think of the film. Come and chat with me afterwards. But that, in a sense, is what this series has been about about wanting to change the conversation, but in such a way that others grab something of the beauty that we see in how God sees us, that when we catch a glimpse of what God has done, it totally changes how we see ourselves. Neither too highly, but also not too lowly either. And therefore, it changes how we see other people as well. And then last week, how we see the church, not as something that we get something out of, but rather a body of people that we belong to as a community belonging to each other. And today, we're asking a big question. What's the point of the church? What role should the church have in our society? And here, if you like, is the sentence summary. This year... During 2024, friends, let's be the church that Birmingham really needs us to be. Let's be the church that Birmingham, and of course beyond, but our city, needs us to be. And as we get into this, uh, we're going to watch another story. You'll know over Riverside, over the last few months at Riverside, we've been encouraging everyone who's part of the church to, to record their story on their phone. A three-minute little video on your phone, send it to us as a way of encouraging us, each other about what God has been doing in our lives. There's still an opportunity. We'd love to hear from you if you want to submit yours. But we're going to hear now a little bit, Dave's here, of Dave Isgrove's story. And let's just listen out as he goes through about the influence of other people on Dave as we hear something of Dave's story. Hi, I wanted to just share with you about milestones because life is full of them. They can be mental, spiritual, physical, but they're events which change the course of your life. And uh, my earliest one was one when I was about 18 and a half. And I've been living a life which was really hedonistic, parties at weekends, etc. A lot of my friends uh, would say they're enjoying themselves. But really, it was like a mask. Inside, underneath, we were all wanting something more. Thinking there must be more to life than this. And a friend of mine 
had um, invited me. He said, oh, come camping this summer. It was a crusader camp because I had been to crusaders or urban saints as they now are when I was younger. And I said, oh, in the end, I, I said, yes, okay. I paid my money. And then later I regretted that. I thought, no, I don't want to go to a Christian camp. I'm not going to become a Christian. And, uh, but then I thought, I don't want to waste my money. So <laughs> I went and I was determined not to give way and to become a Christian. But when I was there, it really struck me how different they were from my friends. There was a transparency to them. They accepted me like nobody else. You know, it was, it was unbelievable. And they accepted each other and they put it down to the relationship they had with Jesus. And it really made me think. I didn't show it, but it really made me think. And then when I got home, I began to question and I thought, God, are you really there? If you really are, I really ought to get to know you. Because if you are there and I just turn my back on you, what am I turning my back on? And so in the end, I prayed and I said, Lord, the proof of the pudding's in the eating. I didn't call him Lord then. And I said, if you're really there, I'm sorry for the mess I've made of my life because I knew my life was like that. And I knew that Jesus had somehow uh, had forgiven me or would forgive me. And I said, would you come into my life? Now I didn't feel anything. I thought, oh well, and I jumped into bed and went to sleep. When I woke up the next morning, I felt so different. I thought, wow, I felt clean. I felt, you know, I was totally forgiven. Everything that I'd done had, had just been wiped clean, had been washed away, like with this river and this waterfall behind. It's as if God had done some amazing work in me. don't know every part of Birmingham, but I'm not sure that's Birmingham where you were, is that right? <laughs> but I'm sure if you asked David, and you can afterwards, he needed that person around him to invite him, to point him to Jesus. Friends, this year, let's be the kind of church that Birmingham needs us to be. The people around Dave, that particular individual, wanted to influence him because of what they discovered. So friends, this year, let's be that kind of church that Birmingham needs. Now, down through history, of course, the relationship between the church and the society in which the church is in has been an interesting one. And there really are four main ways that Christians have related to the culture that they're in. And as we go through these four, I apologize, but I don't really apologize, if something slightly unnerves or niggles you. Come and talk to me afterwards. The first way that Christians have engaged with culture and the surrounding community is they've chosen to withdraw, back away from the culture they're in, usually because of fear. Either choosing to completely withdraw and form sort of little communities that are so kind of separate from the surrounding community, or withdraw enough, but then so that they can still sort of lob grenades of criticism in, if you like, <laughs> from the community around. When I was growing up, there was this, um, <laughs> I say peculiar group, I don't mean that in a negative way. 
although I'm not really sure you can say peculiar in a positive way. They, they, they had this view that they wanted to be so withdrawn from the world that even their church building, they didn't want any windows in. And so therefore, to get planning permission, they had to paint windows on the outside of the building so it looked like they were windows. And what they did is every Saturday on the main road near where we live, they would stand and preach at the cars. Fascinating. Is that the posture that we think Christians should have towards the society? You know, back away because society around them is dangerous. Maybe is that your tendency? Now, I guess many of us wouldn't be like that. But we avoid the parties. We avoid contact with people who aren't followers of Jesus very much. Maybe even because we're so busy in church stuff. I remember a few years ago, a friend of mine who was in the city of London, worked as a trader in the city of London, became a follower of Jesus. Amazing story. He felt that God was calling him to go into church, paid church leadership. And someone very wisely asked him, what gives you the permission to leave the front line? Great question to ask. But is that withdrawal what we think was the New Testament pattern? Well, listen to those words that Paul read to us from Romans chapter 12. Here it is that Agnes read to us. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. I love that phrase. This is from the New Living Translation of the Bible. Of course, there are times to withdraw for a period of time. Jesus did to pray and all of that. Absolutely. But you don't get from that and elsewhere that the church was called to be completely separate. So they kind of almost hidden away. They have nothing to do with it. And what's interesting is when you speak to Christians around the world who are in places where they are oppressed or persecuted because they're Christians, there's a really easy way to stop that persecution. It's to hide away and not be a Christian in public. But so often when you speak to those Christians how, and ask them how can you pray for them, they never say that the persecution will go away. They say pray that we'll be able to stand firm in the middle of the persecution. So maybe we completely withdrawing isn't the way. After all, Jesus was a friend of sinners. That's one way Christians have, through history, related to culture. The second way is almost like the polar opposite of that. The second way is choosing to dominate or try and control the culture that they're in. To be, get yourself into positions of power and so many of you, then you can enforce your views on other people. Where the church gets linked in with the power apparatus of the nation, as it were. And you see that sometimes when there's a sort of controversial thing that's happening. And then sometimes there's a campaign to close down a certain film or whatever it might be. Now, in a sense, you understand the values behind it. But it's when the presumption is that we have the right for our way to dictate for everybody else because we're right. And therefore, we choose to control it. History is littered with church getting in bed with power and therefore actually becoming the oppressor. 
Compare that again with what Paul says, verse 15 and 16 and verse 21. I'll read it again. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. The posture seems to be different here. Not one of trying to dictate and control. Not to force our values in the way that therefore we become oppressive. Now, of course, I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't therefore be in positions of influence. Far from it. Yes, yes, yes. Whatever that looks like. But it's when church becomes the power apparatus, things get a little bit edgy, as history teaches us. So, withdraw, dominate. Interesting. Tom Schreiner says this. I love this quote. Christians are called to be so free from vengeance that we delight in doing good to those who hate us. Wow. There's a third option that Christians throughout history have the ways they've related to culture, and it's this. They've chosen not to withdraw, not to dominate, but actually chosen to compromise, to be no different at all. And we all know, I think, that this isn't actually what society needs or even really what society wants. You get the sense even in conversations now in our kind of public sphere We like it when people kind of, in society, raise questions for us rather than just speak the same way as everybody else. What about compromising? Are we somebody that chooses to compromise? Well, listen again to Paul's words, verse 14 and 17 to 18. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you're honorable Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. I think there's an expectation that Christians, followers of Jesus, will be different from the society they're in. And I wonder if churches like ours, where we rightly have spent decades trying to be as relevant to our culture around so that people get to understand the good news of Jesus. Yes! And we want people to have no barriers apart from Jesus himself. Yes. But I wonder there can easily be a little temptation that in our desire for relevance, that sometimes do we forget that we're also called to be very different. As the old saying goes, only a dead fish swims with the tide. A few years ago in one of the national newspapers, Uh, A journalist who was not a Christian, he was actually an atheist, didn't believe in God. But he was reflecting on some particular news item at at that time where there was a discussion around the role of the church in the nation. And he wrote this, we've said it before, it's fascinating. He wrote, I am not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel like their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Wow. Is that my tendency? Is that yours? 
May not be withdraw, may not be dominate, try and control, but maybe actually just not be different at all. Well, it may be of no surprise that I think there is a fourth option. And may I suggest this is how the early church and Christians throughout history have shone most brightly in what the Bible teaches. And it is a posture of serving. Not to withdraw, not to control, not to compromise, but actually to serve. I love this quote from Joe Saxton. Jesus looked over the city and wept for it and then went into the city and gave his life for it. Notice the posture. Be involved, not distant. Have a posture of service, not control. But we are different, not the same. Birmingham doesn't need us to withdraw away. Birmingham doesn't need us to try and control the values of our city. Birmingham doesn't need us to fit in so that we're no different. It needs people like you and me to be willing to step in and serve, even giving our lives for the sake. And I want to say to you this morning, well done. If you're doing your best with all your falteringness in your school, in your university, in your workplace, those in the corridors of power in the uh, council, those in the NHS, those in education, those in your business. You're simply trying to serve in the best way you can whilst doing a great job. Well done. Keep going. That's what Christians have done throughout history and shone a very bright light by being radically distinct in the culture that you are in. Verse 20 sums it up for us. Here it is. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Now, let's just pause there for a moment. It's not the sort of verse we put on our fridge, is it, that last bit? (laughs) Burning coals of shame. It sounds a bit nasty. But may I suggest that whatever that means, and there's some discussion around what actually it means, it can't mean wanting God to kind of revenge. Because he's just said, pray that God will bless them. So it can't mean that, yeah, be so good that God will smite them. <laughs> no, actually, what it really means, I think, it's probably about overcoming when people do wrong to you. The response is actually by blessing them. In a culture where fire was so important, give so many coals that their fire is overflowing with hot coals so that they can continue to live. As one guy, Todd Hunter, said, why did Christianity spread so rapidly in the early church? The first Christians didn't out-argue the world. They outlived the world. Beautiful. But... Some people won't like it. And as John Tyson said, all renewals and revivals come with resistance and controversy. All of them. So, how? As we sort of, with that said, we're called to serve. How do we do that? And here I want to read a letter to you. And this is a letter that was discovered, it was written probably towards the end of the first century. And it's a letter written to somebody quite senior in the Roman Empire 
who was clearly wanting to know about this Christian community that was growing up. You know, they'd heard rumors about this Christian community and so was asking on behalf of like the empire, is it, who are these? And somebody wrote a letter. It's called the letter to, to Diognetus. Do I say that first thing in the morning? Letter to Diognetus. And it gives us a clue how those first Christians live their lives. And listen to it. I think it's stunning. Here's what the letter says. It's worth reading at length. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or custom. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own, or speak a strange dialect, or follow some outlandish way of life. With regards to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in. And yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not destroy them. They share their table, but not their beds. They live in the flesh, but they're not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they're citizens of heaven. Obedient to laws, yet they live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all people, but all people persecute them. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. A blessing is their answer to abuse, deference their response to any insult. For the good they do, they receive punishment. But even then they rejoice as though they were receiving a gift of life. Isn't that stunning? That's the kind of church that Birmingham needs in 2024. To be a radically distinct community that gives both help and hope. What do we mean by that? Giving help in very practical ways. Conquer evil by doing good, we've just read. Recent research says that actually more than a third of people now in the UK agree that local churches make a positive difference in their community. That has increased from 20% a few years ago. Isn't that amazing? People think Christians are good for society. And if you come to Riverside House at some point during the week, you will hopefully discover, if you've not seen it already, some astonishing things happen. That's why right now there are people in there clattering pans around to provide a free lunch that anybody can come to. That is why throughout the week there are various different things. We host a free cafe. There is money advice for people who are trapped in debt. There is a pantry, which means people who cannot afford to pop into a normal supermarket and get decent food at a real cut-down price. That's why the performing arts ministry, Riverside Performing Arts, are out in schools helping, providing in a beautiful and powerful way, a different way. That's why we have stay in place so that toddlers and their carers can come and just be in a safe, relaxed environment, providing help for our community. And I urge you, if you're part of Riverside and you've never seen it, come down at some point during the week. It's beautiful. But it isn't just in the central things that happen here. All of us, I know, in your world, are doing little things, little acts, making a meal for your neighbours. 
saying to someone at work, I know you're going through it, just to let you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I, I'm praying for you. Those little nuggets of information, providing help, being a blessing in your workplace, in your streets, in your families. However, I wonder if this is what people expect of Christians. And there's something in the passage that we read that reminds us that that sort of help is brilliant and we should do it. And we are doing it. But it's not the only thing we're called to do. Listen again, verse 19. Here it is on the screen. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I'll pay them back, says the Lord. It's another little verse we don't often put on our fridge. What simply Paul, the writer, is saying, if somebody's wronged you, don't take revenge. That's God's business. Be free. He's got it. He's got it sorted. But it reminds us that one day, all will stand before God. That word, leave that to the righteous anger of God, is a fascinating one. And you time to think, well, hang on, is that basically saying, all right, God's going to smite him, so we'll move on? I don't think that's what Paul means. Why? Because already in the book of Romans, a few chapters previously, he writes this that's going to be on the screen. And listen out for that R word, righteousness. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. What he's simply saying is, all will stand before God, and God has made a way, therefore, for all, regardless of who we are, to stand before him simply by believing in what Jesus has done. That is good news. And so therefore, friends, yes, we want to provide practical help for our city. That's what our city needs. But it's not only what they need. There are brilliant organizations all around our city doing great practical things that we want to partner with. Yes, 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 yes. But if you like, the unique distinctive of his church is that we're also called to give hope, spiritual hope. You can't do one without the other. It's like a pair of scissors. <laughs> if you get rid of the help bit, you're just sort of a blade that's not cutting anything. You're, you're speaking to a world that is poor. But if you do the help without actually sharing something of the eternal hope, you're actually not helping meet people's deepest needs. That's why we're called to be a radically distinct community that gives help and hope. And some ask, well, hang on, Tim. Isn't it a bit tricky when you're giving some of the neediest people in society at their place of real vulnerability, isn't it a bit tricky to also kind of try and influence and steer them in your faith? And might I humbly suggest that's because we're not viewing people as whole people. And elsewhere in the world, they would not think like that. There are people crying out for answers. And if we don't hold out the hope that we have in Jesus, we're not meeting their needs in all that they are as people. Think of David's friends, that friend that invited Dave. If you speak to him, I get 
I imagine you're pretty pleased that he invited you to that camp. He didn't think it at the time. And so too, there are people we serve with practical help, but actually we also need to hold out the eternal hope that is only in Jesus. And the concern I have as I look at my own life, and I share with us as a church, is that doing the practical things take up so much energy. Yes, 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 we want to do more, more, more. That's why we long for a better, more efficient building and all of that. But also we will never, ever forget the importance, the centrality of needing to proclaim Jesus, the one who meets all our needs. And I don't know about you, I can't do this. We can't do this. This is not a beat us up sermon. What we need is God's power by his spirit to do just that. And so over these three days, may we pray together and say, Lord, help us to be a radically distinct community of help and hope. God, what are the things that you're calling me to do in the power of your spirit? We're up for this. Shall we stand?